started. I'm Russell Smelly, and uh, this is in line with kind of what um, the topic was going to be for this fall. Micah six eight uh, is something that just uh, I want to talk about because it's the two verses we're going to talk about today. Micah six eight, Psalm one thirty nine twenty three and twenty four. I actually have a song or, or uh, tunes to them that I learned and that have meant a lot to me. They're, they're reminders of me about the growth that uh, I've wanted to do in my life. And so I'm actually going to sing to you, but, and you might even get to uh, sing with me uh, on those. But because they've been meaningful in my personal growth and a challenge to me about how to look at things, uh, that's what I wanted to share about this morning. Because, uh, so let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, Lord of hosts, thank you for your love and grace and for the binding of your Holy Spirit, which brings our hearts together to listen, to learn, to work together. And Lord, may we have a sense of you in our conversation this morning and uh, consider the thoughts uh, that I share as a perspective on what I've learned from your word. In Christ's holy name, amen. amen. Okay, so uh, sources for what I'm going to talk about today, just things I've been reading lately. Uh, I actually really enjoy, I have a leadership Bible, the NIV version that a former athlete and a good friend gave me who does leadership training that I don't open it all that much because as soon as I open it, there's something that they have these guides and all that just like you got right here and I can't help but then I have to read it. I feel compelled <laughs> to have to do something about it. And, uh, and so that's a good thing, but uh, it, it carries me in other directions. But also... Um, other things that, that I've uh, been reading on uh, prayers and prayer in the night by Tish Harrison Warren, uh, Anglican priest, uh, and for those who work or watch or weep, and just her take on that. And she's very vulnerable and things that have led her to what she's written. And then also uh, Richard Rohr, who's a, a monk uh, and uh, lives in a uh, out in New Mexico and that uh, Jesus' alternative plan, the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about how Jesus flipped the world with the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'll read a little bit of that from you, for you. And then you'll hear John Perkins mention, and John Perkins is an um, African-American pastor down in the south of Mississippi, and uh, he's spoken at, uh, at chapel at Westmont, really a magnificent man who's been through the heat of the civil rights movement, lived the life of being uh, not so much uh, being acted upon justly or getting mercy uh, because of his race uh, where he grew up. But anything by John Perkins is uh, meaningful. And then Dr. Henry Cloud, I've, I've actually just, I've read other books by him. I use them in my classes. Uh, Christian um, psychiatrist, psychologist who works with uh, just things of the heart. And this is about trust that I'm looking forward to reading. But again, just to get his name out to you, Henry Cloud is an excellent resource for learning and growing. So anyway, these are here, and uh, I've noted them. Or maybe I, did, I haven't noted them. I'm just noting them to you now. So Micah 6.8, He has shown me, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the tune to that is, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
whatever other words you want to put it. Um, and that has always, that I can walk and sing that in my head. I don't sing it out loud very much. And I'm actually kind of pleased with how that turned out just now, <laughs> considering what my voice can do sometimes. Um, but it's challenged me too. I grew up with Confederate flags and a love of the South and that, that lost cause story uh, growing up in Virginia. And then to adjust to what that actually means in the life of our nation uh, and to give up some icons that matter to me and actually influence my character and my development for what I be uh, believe in them, uh, it's been challenging to act justly and to see that. But what does the Lord require of me? I mean, if I want to act justly, I have to really take that seriously and consider what I believe and to love mercy because mercy doesn't call for acting out in ju uh, justice of, as in law, as in sentencing, but to love mercy and justice for doing what's right for people. And to walk humbly with your God to actually not feel like that what I want and how I look at things is the way it's supposed to be. And then search me, O God, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. And this was brought to my attention in 1978 when I was on a tour with a Christian track and field team representing the U.S. behind the Iron Curtain. So in Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and Romania and Poland. And four of the guys came up with a tune and started singing it and got kind of proud of it. And then got to, well, if we can't sing it right, we shouldn't sing it and all this. But it has stuck with me and it actually informs this one for me. And so the tune they used was, if I get the right pitch, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And for me, this uh, searching, searching my heart, try me to know, that summer I really had hoped, I'd run for, I had a run on a U.S. team indoor Nash, uh, indoors against the Europeans in uh, Milan, Italy that past March, and now I made this team, which by the way, I got on because it was by a Wheaton College coach, and my good friend from my high school was on that team and told him, gave him my name, so these little connections. And I was going there thinking, six and a half weeks in Europe, racing in these big meets, it's going to get me set up for Olympic trials, am I going to get better? And it was an awful summer of running. Just awful. It was hard. Everything was bad. Uh, I think I won one race and it was a miserable uh, race. I just remember how bad it felt. Even though I won, it just was miserable. And, but I was growing spiritually because I was being challenged in ways I'd never been with a group of Christian guys. I'd been growing up in the Southern Baptist Church. I was, had faith and was confident of that. But I hadn't been with a group of people like this who sang songs differently, who had different experiences from Cal Berkeley to me at Richmond and everything in between, and a, a mixture of people. And so this has always touched my heart. And so when I'm walking 
and uh, things just feel a little overwhelming. This one I sing, and when I feel challenged that I have to stand up and do what's right, I sing this one to myself. And they, they work in concert for me uh, overall. So I, I look at Micah 6.8 as I called it directive guidance. This is what you should do. And I looked at this one as I called it introspective guidance. Searching myself and looking to God for guidance. So I got to do this one. But I learn by doing this one. Because this one informs this one for me. So I got a lot of stuff I can share. There's no way I got to do it. So I'm just going to, I'm going to throw out ideas and you interact with it and throw back at me anytime you want to. Um, a friend on the faculty shared this. Holiness is not a coat we put on for a purpose. It is a daily practice. Rigorous self-examination. Introspection must be practiced in relationship to others. Soul searching is aligning ourselves with God and neighbors and community. So that means we don't grow alone. Uh, we grow in community. We grow in talking to other people. We grow in, in, in interrogating ourselves. Why did I do that? What is going on with this? So introspection, and I pr pr uh, pronounce that a lot in my classes, and with, even with my with, uh, men's cross-country team last week, what have you written down about your races? Do you just run them and then go, want to forget about it? You have to learn from what you're experiencing if you want to get better. So introspection is saying, how did it go? What in the world did I say that for? Or I could have said this. Do you have them keep journals? That's what I had them bring out. And so we, I gave them at the start of the season, and we wrote in them, and I said, bring them back. Let's see what you wrote. And there weren't many pages written in. <laughs> 18 to 22-year-old guys are terrible because they, they avoid it. I mean, even poor Will in the hospital, um, and it's a, this is awful, but it, I mean, he is a sweet and innocent young man, and so when the doctors would come in, he would just lie in the bed and stare straight ahead. And he would answer, but he did not want to interact because the reality was just overwhelming to him. And that's how he talks to me, too, when I make a decision he doesn't like. He talks to me, he kind of stares away, but then he introspects, and he comes back and talks to me, or he writes me a beautiful, I didn't like it, well, I understand what you're doing, I appreciate you, I wish you hadn't made that decision, but I, I'm going to grow from this, and I appreciate your support. Um, but that, the ability to, to introspect and to write and consider what it is that I need to learn is important. And it helped me to do that as a young man, to start journaling and writing things down. So on the paper I got, this is actually one of those study guides from this uh, leadership Bible. So I'm going to kind of go, well, I am going to go through this, no kind of about it. Um, and, and it's something you can take home, and just I'm going to highlight this, that, and the other from it. And um, what the first thing is, uh, in Amos 5.24, um, the people of Israel were prosperous, but with that prosperity, they lost their spiritual edge, and God was furious with them, which is hard to imagine God being furious with you, what that would, what that would do. Uh, but the leaders, who, in the second paragraph, who should have administered justice, didn't. Instead, they cast righteousness to the ground. But before judgment fell on them, God offered an opportunity for repentance and a restoration. He called them to turn back to him. And in order to please God, the leaders needed to exercise justice and righteousness. And the imagery in this verse is profound. In contrast to stream beds that are dry much of the year, that justice should flow down 
like a river. And so that begs the question then, what is justice? How do you define justice? David? Well, last time uh, I saw him coupled it with righteousness. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, true religion is act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I'm thinking, which, <coughs> if any of the prophets qualify for that in our mind, I would think none of them. Because their righteousness was pretty gnarly. Yeah, the Old Testament is, well, there's judgment passed all the time. And so is justice judgment? That's a good question. Because there's also social justice, which I listened to. I was, I was just, you know, when you see things on YouTube and all in this pastor's in. If you go to a church and you see the word social justice, run as fast as you can away from there because they're preaching this. Mm-hmm. Don't go to that unchristian church. Okay, so well, justice is, yeah. That's wrong. I think justice is love. Okay. Justice is also Jesus blind. Jesus. Huh? That? But justice is blind. No, no, no. Love isn't blind. Okay. Jesus says love is not blind. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Did, I mean, Ed Song did the whole class about justness. justice and righteousness because, yeah, they're always paired together. Mm-hmm. But he talked about how it's putting broken things to rights or mm-hmm. things that have gone wrong, like mm-hmm. restoring them. And yeah, I don't know. And he also made a whole like meta narrative about God's justice. Like mm-hmm. God's plan is justice. God's plan is bringing broken things to rights. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to define it. Yes, ma'am. Like accountability. There's accountability and justice. So what's the problem then with social justice? There shouldn't be any problem with it. David, sorry. I, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to. Former class. Yeah. I think that uh, they quoted Glenn Mia, Ed Tom quoted Glenn Beck. And so a lot of people who are for Christian values feel that it's all mixed up here. You have a secular, sodomite, social engineering, and call it social justice. It feels mm-hmm. like the opposite of justice and righteousness. Opposite of justice and righteousness? It does. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of you. Know, welfare plantation, all kinds of things that don't seem to accomplish what they're supposed to do, and they're paying people to stay where they are almost. It's kind mm-hmm. of crazy. It's all mixed up. So, um, we talked about the prophets and whether they were just. But how about Elijah? If he wasn't completely just, he was God's justice mm-hmm. on earth. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in that regard, so justice is actually about the law. If we think about justice, we have a, a legal system in our country, which is about justice, and that justice is blind. Everybody's treated equally, except when people put their thumb on the scales. Well, that's what Elijah did. Mm-hmm. He was God's hitman, actually. He was? Yeah. Look at what he did to Ahaz and all of his buddies. Yeah. And so in the, in the Old Testament, justice is more, a lot legal uh, and a lot, you know, there's a lot of punishment, you know, and that the justice of you invade the country, kill them all. Every, you know, those really harsh ones that are hard. What do we do with that? But then along comes Jesus, who under, overturned, turned things upside down in the way of justice. Uh, there's 
let you know let the let justice roll like a river in Amos uh, in Isaiah thirty eighteen on justice and God he says the Lord longs to be gracious to you fairness and justice through love justice was a prominent concern of Jesus conspicuous in the manner in which he transcended social racial and economic barriers in the community so it went away from justice as in class and what you got judged based on where you how you lived and who you were part of to that he just turned it upside down about justice social justice is something we do for those who are in need those who have less and then so part of our debate is how do we do that and uh, and so and part of that you know even in the church now don't go no don't want no social justice we want justice we want people to be punished we want right and wrong to be reestablished it goes back to the Old Testament Torah, though. They talk about not gleaning the corners of your fields and mm-hmm. having compassion on the visitor and the poor. You were a foreigner, so you'd be kind to the poor. So they, they had it in mind. Yeah, well, it was, part of, what, it was part of their law. I just said to someone the other day, it would, if we would just leave the corners of our field available to those who need it now, it would change things. Yeah. Okay. For me, it's kind of like justice is what I deserve but mercy is what I want. Mm. And with Jesus is what you get. Yeah. But for the rest of the world, I sometimes want them to get justice, not the mercy. Mm -hmm. Because that's who I am. I'm not a good person sometimes. But I want the mercy. And I want to learn how to give that mercy to the other people that I want justice. Mm-hmm. But I want to be able to do it in a fair and right way. Okay. I, I just always think of um, combining justice and compassion. There's, you know, you can't, if you're in a church setting, to mm-hmm. me, um, wherever you're at with justice, but there's got to be compassion Lord with us. So if the Lord goes to the well and takes the you know, woman at the well and he loves her and she's a sinner, then how much more should we have compassion for others within our world? Yeah. The woman at the well story is quite a quite an amazing thing. Yes. Uh, I mean it she's transcended so many barriers, yeah. so many social taboos. It's a very his disciples, yeah, his, go ahead. I was just going to say, justice isn't something like peripheral. Justice is something all Christians are called to. So mm-hmm. it's not really, like people might have problems with certain ways the language has been co-opted by certain political mm-hmm. groups, but it's not really optional for Christians. <coughs> like justice is God's heart. Fairness for God's people is, is like the story from the Old Testament. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's not optional. I just want to yeah. Like when you started and you said you had to break down barriers and understanding that you had some barriers in your life and all of us understanding people around us, we all have grown up with barriers and filters that make these people down. So mm-hmm. The introspection you spoke of, I think, is also really important for Christians to take within themselves, an introspective look at their views of how to be more like Jesus. That's it, yeah. 
Uh, I was just reading an uh, Atlantic article this morning talking about immigration in the 1965 law that Lyndon Johnson signed on immigration and how the opponents said this is going to cause all these problems. And, uh, and the proponents said, no, Ted Kennedy was the main proponent. Not any issues. It's only going to do this. Well, it turns out the critics were right <coughs> that that law, which was based on justice and a fair way of going about immigration, was a good thing. But they, because they wanted to be a good thing, they downplayed the implications. And it actually carries over to today the negative things that the critics pointed out. But because they wouldn't do introspection and say, well, that's, that is possible, but this is what we want to do, and we'll, we may have to take a look at that again. So now we just have this divide. No immigration, keep them all out, or everybody comes in and the debate goes on. And so then is it justice or law? It was a law passed, but it's had implications that both sides can't come to a point of saying, let's work on this because this is important for justice's sake. David? Well, it's interesting, the whole tension. There's all these tensions and seeming paradoxes to deal with, and there's always pluses and minuses. But uh, compassion is one, but so is discipline. You really don't have love without discipline, and it mm -hmm. depends on you know, how we work that out. You need some discipline. If you lose it, you might lose the whole shebang. Yeah. And John Perkins is going to speak to that, uh, one of the last things we're going to do. Uh, flip your uh, page over. Henry Nowen, uh, this is a, if you, uh, Henry Nowen's passed away in 96, but there's a society, the Henry Nowen Society, which keeps his work going. So I get every day get a Henry Nowen devotional, and this is one, and this, I felt like this uh, fit us. Um, Zig, how do you feel about public reading? You okay sure. with reading that out for us, that. the burden of judgment? Absolutely. <clears throat> Imagine having to need, no need at all to judge anybody. Imagine having no desire to decide whether someone is a good or bad person. Imagine being completely free from the feeling that you have to make up your mind about the morality of someone's behavior. Imagine that you could say, I am judging no one. Imagine, would that be true inner freedom? But we can only let go of the heavy burden of judging others and we don't mind carrying the light burden of being judged. Can we free ourselves from the need to judge others? Yes, by claiming for ourselves the truth that we are the beloved daughters of the sons of God. As long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. We will remain addicted to the need to put people and things in their right place. To the degree that we embrace the truth that our identity is not rooted in our success, power, or popularity, we can let go of our need to judge. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, because the judgment you give are the judgments you will get. Matthew 71. <coughs> And John 8, 7 reads, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So how, we were talking about being judgmental and not trying not to be that. What, how does this, what does this say to you? Don't be. Don't be. <laughs> Get to the point, Mike. Henry Nowen is the best Catholic ever. 
<laughs> yeah, Jesuits are Jesuits and monks are lovely. They spend time thinking and praying. It's amazing when they think what they come up with. Yeah. I was thinking. Um, I like this to the degree to which we embrace the truth that our identity, yeah, you know, not rooted, not like we can let go of our need to judge, and just the little progress I think I've made, <laughs> well, maybe maybe the last 20 or so years in that way. Um, it's a real freeing up. It's a burden lifted from my shoulders that I don't have to be judging certain people with certain lifestyles. Yeah. Let God judge. Yeah. I was having a really good conversation, yeah, I was having a really good conversation with a, an older friend who's passed away now, but we were just talking along and I said, is he a Christian? And he goes, I don't know. That's between him and God. And I'm like, oh, we were having this nice conversation. And all of a sudden, he's like, in my face, like I'd done something really wrong. And, but I remember that. It's not my place. And so when people say, they're not a Christian. They are a Christian. I'm going, how do you know that? Yeah. And how do you, why do you get to decide who is and who isn't? Because they said or didn't do something. I just had someone say to me one time, about our church says, yeah, I heard about a line and a prayer that was spoken in your church, which really concerns me. I'm like, a line and a prayer? I mean, the, just our open mic, you know, things could be all kinds of mess for somebody who just walked in and go, what is this church doing? Uh, but the judgmentalness of deciding who is and who isn't, I mean, just read anything you want on whatever side of the political spectrum, religious or uh, otherwise, and that's what's going on. This thing about, I'm judging because I want things put in the right place. Those people did this. You ain't judging my people because they did wrong and you didn't fix it, so my people are off the hook. Like, uh, how do we do that as, as Christians? How do we do that as churches and pastors from the pulpit deciding who is and isn't righteous based on what we want things to be? Uh, because if anything, you know, and, um, and we're going to come to this, I'll hold on that point for a second. Um, another thing from our uh, faculty retreat, a person's made up what they called a proclamation of humility from Psalm 1914. And you all have heard this. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Psalm 51, 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David? Just to throw a big monkey wrench in this thing, I think iron sharpens iron, but silly putty doesn't sharpen silly putty. So you want to have people who are convicted. We do this all the time. All the heresies in the beginning, you're a heretic. No, you're a heretic, but they worked it out, yeah. Took a long time, you know, for the Aryan heresy. Did they work it out? 200 years for the Aryan heresy. You know, we have any orthodoxy. Yeah, the orthodox, yeah. So, but that, the key word is humility. And uh, that, that the two, two things I've been reading lately uh, that they said about good leaders, the number one uh, quality is humility, and the other is to listen, which is not what necessarily gets demonstrated in the public sphere. Uh, humility and listening. And so how can we be not judgmental? Henry Nouwen challenges us, challenges us really well. Um, I'm going to skip over on here. I got, I got, I've got numbers all over the place here because of this study. 
kicked you around here, there, and everywhere. So I'm going uh, to page 1098. And about the part on that page says, Justice and who I am. Uh, Zechariah 9, 10, um, 8 through 10. All right, let me get my right place here. It's all so the kind of paper in this that makes my fingers feel really fat. Um, so read Zechariah uh, 8 through 10. And as it says here, true justice is expressed in acts of mercy and compassion, particularly for those who are destitute, widows, orphans, aliens, and the poor. And real justice involves the application of power and influence to other-centered concerns. And such genuine justice flows out of a Christ-like attitude of serving others. And backs that up with Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, I want to pick this. So according to Zechariah 7, 9 and 10, when true justice is administered, I just read that, is expressed in acts of mercy and compassion for the widows, orphans, aliens, and the poor. Such genuine justice flows out of a Christ-like attitude of serving others. And so how do we serve others and withhold judgment so that we can be righteous and do these acts justly and love mercy? For me, it's attitude. Mm-hmm. When I address somebody, um, I need to just be completely objective and not think of them one way, or the other, or any way, just because of what maybe they look like or they sound like. Mm-hmm. And that usually works for me. Yeah, attitude. It is our attitude of how we look at things. I mean, I was just reading that our new Speaker of the House says, if you want to know my worldview, read the Bible. Which, that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, he says, by the way, I don't like these people. I don't like these people. I don't yeah. like these people. <laughs> so, what in a public sphere? What is that? What is that proclaiming? You know, we're going to set things right, and these things are going to be turned around while uh, while I'm here. So, justice and who I am, attitude. I think Mike makes a good point. Is well, how am I looking at my relationship with God, and how am I living out my relationship with God in the lives of other people? and who I come in contact with. Um, so then going to justice and how it works, and i got to skip over here to page 1073, which you don't have that. I just kind of gave you this outline so you know I wasn't making all of this up, and that, and I, and that probably I don't have any original thoughts on the case either. But um, justice and how it works, it's a, leadership is a complex issue, so you go into what leadership looks like. And that even a brief look at one or two books on the subject of ethics raises the levels of guilt and confusion. And the prophet Micah cut right to the chase. What is good and what does the Lord require? And his next admonition sounds remarkably like Jesus as he expounded the golden rule. Behave justly and mercifully toward other people and walk humbly before God. So everyone should act with justice and mercy, but the stakes go up when leaders are involved. Um, think about what will, and then it, he, this little uh, outtake here says, think about what will involve the least amount of pain for people over whose lives you hold power. That instead of exerting power for gain, what is it, how is it going to affect the people? You know, so when it's time for layout, Simon Sinek classically talked about uh, a person who had this big company, but when they had to do a, um, 
uh, paring back. They were, they were, the economy was going down. And they said, we got to do layoffs. It's not laying off anybody. This is what we're going to do. Everybody is going to contribute to us staying here. So we're going to give everybody time off, unpaid, six weeks. You're going to work. You're not going to work for six. You're not going to get paid. Now you can trade that. If some who are better off can say, I don't need that six weeks. I will give it to someone else who needs it and give them 12 weeks or whatever. And so what happened was they asked everybody to sacrifice, not equally necessarily. You could choose the level you needed or you could give it. And they came through it out the other side, better off and still everybody employed. And that's an unusual response in our economy and how capitalism tends to work because the bottom line, the product just matters more than the people typically. So it's an unusual response, but it worked because he, because he went to the whole company and said, this is what I'm suggesting we do. And they accepted it and went for it because they all were, were able to volunteer into it in order to save people's jobs. So some people lost a bit, some people gained a bit, but everybody was still working there. What was that company? I'm sorry. He didn't say. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and this says, the formative mental attitude, going back to Mike's attitude, and Micah's statement is, walk humbly with your God. Leaders who do so, acknowledging their own human foibles, are more apt to lead humanely. Those who cry out for God to be fair, just, and merciful to them are more apt to grant to others what they know they need from God. So the humility to give, to accept the grace and also to give the grace it becomes easier when we put, do it both ways. Judy, you know, thanks for making that, because I, I want the mercy, but I'm not so sure I want other people to have mercy, and I, I struggle with that, and I work on that, and that's important. Okay, so justice and how it works. Um, so then justice and what to do, and this is where we're going to hear from John Perkins. By the way, I have an assignment. You can mentally be working on this as we go along. Is to come up with the corollaries to these two verses that Jesus said. So think about verses you know that Jesus actually stated this, these two things uh, in, his, in his teachings. And that's going to be how we finish up. And just doing that. Here, let me get to my spot here. I wrote my notes down, but I will tell you. And this, uh, this part of justice on about justice and what to do is relating to Nehemiah rebuilding the wall and actually have an opposition for rebuilding the wall. Um, but then John Perkins, John Perkins I mentioned earlier, um, said this in his book with Justice for All. He writes, quote, that truth that we are not owners but stewards. By the way, that friend who said, I don't know if he's a Christian, that's between him and God, also said, we're just taking care of this house for the next people who are going to live in it. <coughs> Which was a transformational thought to me, too. That, I don't, that the ownership isn't important. It's I, get, I have this place I can live for now, and I, the next person who lives here, I want to leave it that they can have a good use of it as well. It's holding loosely possessions. So he said, we are not owners but stewards, demands today as then an equitable distribution of the world's resources. The earth and its resources do not belong to us at all, but to God, end quote. 
Perkin assures the reader that he is not, quote, talking about taking all the money from the rich and giving it to the poor. That wouldn't help a bit. Instead, Perkins asserts, quote, the poor need something more than handouts. They need the means to build a better life for themselves. We must bring into the poor community the basic education that people need. We must teach them the vocational and management skills required to start community-based economic enterprises. And where I grew up, black people were dumb. People talked about their intellect all the time. But then you go, but they didn't allow them to get educated. They didn't provide them resources to have the education that I was getting until they integrated the schools when I was in fifth grade. And so why wouldn't a person sound uneducated if you didn't allow them to be educated? It, the inequities were built into the system of keeping people down and therefore, and then stereotyping them uh, with what exactly had been done to them. So he says we need to provide resources. So in the discussion, that makes me think of the discussions now about poor communities not having the resources to teach as well as well-to-do communities. And even in our, in our neighborhood, you know, in Cold Spring School, parents complain about how they don't have as much as... Um, Montecito Union. So we're a poor school. And one mile away is Cleveland School on minimum state allotment of over under $5,000 while the students at Cold Spring get $14,000 and they get 16 or 17 over at Montecito Union. Teachers get... Yeah, whatever it goes on. Yeah, so it's different. It just adds up. Shows the injustice, which is, was a prayer request. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't, and the injustice, oh, we look at it, might not be, um, so they have more money, okay. But to say we're a poor school related to a rich school, and, and when someone brought up Cleveland School, this parent said, oh, no, 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 not, can't compare that, can't compare that. Don't, I want mercy, I want them to be judged on their own merits. You know, that, that's, that's a different place, that's a different deal. It's like, Oh, wow, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. So anyway, John Perkins coming from that place of, of abandonment by society and being placed in a certain restriction is admonishing us not to say make everything right and reparation and everything, but just give resources so people can go up. And they have to choose then to do that, David. The tragedy, though, is we need love in all this stuff because whenever it was a bourgeois black society is often persecuted then too because of the lack of love similar with all the relations of the world you know, if we don't have, if you hold another person in contempt it doesn't matter how well they do or not it's not going to work, you have to love them and rejoice in their goodness Yeah. Well, and then there was the, the light, lighter skinned black people in New York City had a society which they did not allow darker skinned people in because that would diminish <coughs> We humans are a mixed up bunch. Uh, we, we, don't, we want equity as long as it's on my terms. Yeah. Okay. That's a good introspection. So I'm going to, this is Richard Rohr, and this, this is a chapter called Understanding the Social Order. So I'm just going to read some things, and you can agree or disagree. He's just challenging us to think about things. Um, people tend to compare themselves with other people within their class. Our worldview, meaning America, however, tends toward across-the-board envy, competition, and comparison. Because in a capitalist society, uh, no, one, no wonder so many people in American society are anxious. 
The ego only knows itself by comparisons, and comparing a losing is a losing game because our reference points are always changing. We're building on sand. Now, that's one of the things, one of the uh, verses I came up with uh, about Jesus was the uh, person who built on the rock and the person who built on the sand. What were they building upon? They built the house. They could live in it, but the, what it was built upon was easily um, washed away in the storm. And so if we build our, our life upon our prosperity and our power and our standing, that can be washed away in a moment. And Jesus came and said, that doesn't matter. Because if you're poor, and the poor are always with us, you still have dignity. You still have meaning. You still have, should be cared for as best we can. As the person who has well-to-do, I, I brought it up to Priscilla and Aquina. Is that Aquina? Aquinas. Acro- the, the couple, what was the names? So the couple who... Who said they gave and they did? They didn't. Oh, Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you. I was, I'm way off base. Good memory. Okay, so they came and said, "Hey, we sold this stuff, and here's our part." And they said, "No, you didn't." And they dropped dead. Well, one, one, she dropped dead. Or he dropped dead, and then she came in and got a chance to say the truth and didn't, and so she was dead which seems like a pretty harsh judgment on the spot, except that they said they did something they did not, that, that we have been generous and we're giving all we sold to the community because it made them look good, but it wasn't actually the truth. And so how much of, and this is American life, how much is what we're presenting, what we want people to see, and we do it. And because they talk about, he'll go, get in here and talk about to do our things in secret. Jesus says, when you pray, go into secret because don't be like the, those who come and pray in the public so they can be praised and how wonderful they are. Don't give your money out front where people can see it so that you'll be elevated in people's eyes. Do it in secret because those are the things that bring true humility and uh, spiritual growth. Um, It says, Jesus himself is the go-between for all who call themselves Christian. That's the Christ image, who stands as the mediating symbol between us and God. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. Look at me and you'll know what God is like. Jesus is, in effect, our great patron who stands between us and God and tells us we can trust God because God is like him. Quote, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And daringly, he says, I am the gate which is an offense to society. That's what you read, and you can pick any media thing, and it'll come up about Christians. Christians believe their way is the only way. But Jesus said, I'm the only way. And so that's an offense to society. In the Bible, we have a narrative from the bottom instead of from the top. Furthermore, it endured, which is remarkable when we consider that few of the books in the Bible were initially written down, but rather handed down orally. This inverted look at society. Okay, I'll jump into this, I underlined it. The Declaration of Independence was written by rich white male landowners, and it was addressing the enfranchisement of rich white males. The mythologies of private property, guns and violence, racism and sexism are enshrined in the very foundations of the country. Also good things, our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution have opened the door to justice and mercy. 
depending on how it's interpreted and how power plays it out. But in many ways, these really forward-thinking men and uh, did really good things, but they were looking at it from a certain perspective. They had, and they wanted to make sure they kept having. In the Bible, we have... Oh, no, I read that one. Okay. Um, body, heart, and gut people come to God in different ways than through correct or interesting ideas. My point here is that the gospel is not primarily a set of facts, but a way of seeing and a way of being in the world because of God. Jesus speaks to the heart saying, and he numbers these, one, God is on your side. Two, God can be trusted. Three, the universe is safe and benevolent. Four, trust yourselves, one another, and God. Five, there's no reason to be afraid. And six, it's all heading towards something good. And he does this primarily by touch, relationship, healing, and parables. So Brene Brown, about belonging, when she talks about her research for belonging, that people are harder to hate close up, so move in. That when we have bias, speak truth to BS and be civil. And, and by the way, Brene Brown, if you hear her speak, she cusses here and there because she's a Texan and she's proud of it. Uh, but, so she uses the word, but she says be civil, and she had to learn to do that. Hold hands with strangers. Come alongside people. And then have a strong back, a soft front, welcoming people, and a wild heart that we risk things for, for a sense of belonging. Yeah, David. Was, uh, the head of the was sorry? Oh, sorry. Could we hear from Jenny? Yeah, Jenny and then David. I was curious about people who were at the last uh, time when we heard from Jim that the wild heart reminds me of you want to improvise sometimes and let the Holy Spirit nudge you to do or say things that feel risky in you. You know, you might get a good result from somebody who's an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, it's, it's a risk to, to try. David? A similar, there was a head of the American Psychological Association. It's hard to believe he considered Jesus the supreme personality. He said he was conservative first and radical second. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, he's faithful to Torah. He said, I can yeah. destroy the lava to fulfill, but he did exactly what he said, turn the world upside down. Yeah. He reached out to the audience. Who he talked to and who he was with. Yeah. If you want that, and it's just interpretation, but it, it, the Chosen series has just given me thoughts that they've given no interpretation, but it just makes you sit there and think, oh my goodness, he's just walking around out here and all these people are around who don't like Jews or whatever, and he's proclaiming things and touching people in ways that, and getting to people that couldn't be done by the, the way the world was going at the time. Uh, in the, on the page I gave you here, I wrote down three things here. One, the verse of Psalm 139. But justice and fairness help to create a sense of belonging. And that, so I captured this off of a previous talk, that belonging is primarily what people want, a sense of that I've, I'm okay where I'm at. I want to be a part of something that matters. And so these are ways, she says, we can create a sense of belonging. I think our church tries to create a sense of belonging that when people walk in the door, they feel like, okay, I can sit down here and it's all right. I don't have to know or say or do the right things. I'm just welcome here. Somehow, we've, I think, created that atmosphere for people to be safe, to come in and see if they, they belong here. 
Um, and that's what we need to be doing in our own lives, that sense of belonging, that it's okay for me to be a part of this, even though I'm not this, that, or the other. Um, and then Maya Angelou, this, I just, she, just, she was an amazing woman and uh, went through a lot of hard stuff, but just kept being positive and being affirming and then also being truthful. But I just came upon this one more recently. Do the best you can until you know better. Okay. Then when you know better, do better. And so when I was learning things, I, I resisted a lot of things because of heritage. And I had to learn to start giving things up, even though I'm not totally convinced everything was wrong, but, but it's a place of giving up things that I want to be right for what's actually right. And so to do, when I know better, I have to do better. I have to choose and then you'll see people arguing with it. Yeah, but, okay, I'll do that, but. What about those people? They, I don't like how they act. I don't like what these people get. I don't like what that party does. Therefore, I will be righteous up to the point that they're righteous. And then we have to fight. And, and then actually pastors saying that they preach from the gospel and preach Jesus stuff. And people come and say, where'd you get that communist socialist stuff? Well, actually, Jesus said it. So, no, no, it's not true. And but that's going on in our churches, too, because a political line is people are putting their worth in their politics and in their status and in the, what their class and things. And so it's really hard to see Jesus saying, do it differently, because we have, that, that's, uh, we have so much. I, I taught my Fitness for Life class. We feel we're independent. We can do anything. We got it all together. I said, if Vons closes down and the dining commons runs out of food, where are you going to eat at, you important, independent people? And they kind of look at me like, uh, that couldn't happen. Not that it wouldn't happen. But so our privilege is that we do have so much, but, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. God's gifted us, but what do we do with it? Do we hoard it and hold it and protect it by law and other things, or do we share it? And Jesus called us just to share, just give a little. It's not just, uh, and don't hold it and figure I won't have enough if I share. Okay. That, that could go on and on not solving anything today (laughs) but I do encourage reading and introspection and writing talking about things and reading a variety of things just makes you think and I I think in many ways Jesus just wanted us to think a little bit he wanted the Pharisees not just stop for a moment and think about what you just said so when he stands up and says that what the person without sin cast the first stone he caught him right between the eyes because they knew he was speaking from the Torah, and they couldn't do anything. They wanted him to do something wrong, and instead he caught them in their conscience. That's a powerful thing. So what are some verses? Real quickly, what are some verses that when Jesus talked this way? Can you, did you think of any? What comes to mind? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Okay. Sermon on the Mount's got a lot. I was going to say all of the attitudes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a, anything um, come to mind? 
I know it's hard to think of it. I, oh, I know that verse, I know that verse. Second of the Beatitude, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Yeah. Or like when he says about tithing, like you tithe cumin and uh, the other spices, but you deny justice and mercy. And mm-hmm. I would want you to do that too, but also like act justly. Okay. No, that's not priorities, right? And the second one, where Jesus says, um, "Look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Um, aren't they taking good care? Worry, they yeah. don't have ang- They don't aren't anxious, and yet look what they have." And then the, um, there's another verse where he says, um, "Think of all that's lovely. That's Whatever's excellent, whatever. Yeah, whatever's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, excellent. The attitude starts out, blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Talking about people that weren't talked about very much. That's a, yes? The one that says, search me, O God. I just, I love that. Um, one of my favorite things when I get tired of being busy with stuff is be anxious for nothing. And I don't know, it's in Philippians or Ephesians. Be, be anxious. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Uh, give your anxieties to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, the verse that I try to stand on is, "The Lord is my rock and redeemer." It's mm-hmm. just like I have to visually see that strength and structure. A couple I have, uh, Matthew nine thirteen. Go and learn the meaning of the words. Mercy is what pleases me, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And that was from Hosea. Mm-hmm. And we said earlier, Matthew 7, 1, 2, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then just thinking about the wise and foolish builders on the sand and on the rock. So there are a lot of ways. So that, it's a good good time just to go back in and read the words of Jesus and how it, these things, how he reflected back on the Old Testament into the things he encouraged us to do. Okay, we're ready to be done. Yeah, can you pray for us, Cecil? I will, thank you. Lord God, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord of hosts, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who binds our hearts, who puts before us words and thoughts and opportunities to share love, to be merciful, and to seek after justice. I pray, Lord, that we'll each be challenged to see our own life and what it is that we place as important there, and that whatever is not you, Lord, that we would let that go and put you at the top. In Christ's holy name, amen. Thank you all for hanging out. Thank you.